I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Gregor Craigie joins me again. The acclaimed broadcaster and author recently published a new novel, Radio Jetlag. The book's central character, Stephen Milburn, has moved from Ottawa to uh, take up the early morning duties at uh, a Victoria, B.C. talk radio station. The early, early morning hours are tough, and Stephen also has parental duties. The book provides marvelous insight into the life of a morning radio personality who's got to balance journalism with attracting an audience. There are clashes with Mr. Caulfield, the uh, station's owner, and the attendant challenges of living in an increasingly unaffordable city in Canada. I'll ask Mr. Craigie about his own work and what he uh, might have gleaned from his job as uh, a morning radio host on the public broadcaster, as well as uh, the unique sort of people that work all sorts of jobs in the morning, whether it's uh, at a radio station or the guy at uh, the Tim Hortons working overnight. The story of homelessness is something that Gregor has covered in Victoria and an encampment on uh, the uh, lawn of uh, Victoria's courthouse is something that's pivotal to the story in Radio Jetlag. It's a fun book and uh, also well plotted. Mr. Craigie's ability to communicate was already evident in his great broadcasting work and that he's managed to deploy those skills in a novel is evidence of his prodigious talent. Gregor Craigie is a host of CBC Radio 1's On the Island in Victoria. He uh, first appeared on the podcast in 2021 when On Borrowed Time, an important book on earthquakes, was published. It went on to be nominated for the Writers' Trust Balsillie Prize for Public Policy. This new book is published by Cormorant Books. We taped this interview in mid-August. Please uh, welcome back to the Plants Online program, Gregor Craigie. Mr. Craigie, good morning. Hi, Joe. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you. I asked you this the last time you, you were on with a, your, your first book. Um, how do you find time to write? I guess that's a question that you must get a lot. Yeah. It, it is, but I, I I started writing in earnest again because I, I always wrote as a kid and then as a young journalist. Uh, but but when my first of three kids came on the scene, was born, I I went through about uh, I guess it was about ten years of not really keeping up a personal writing habit. And then when my youngest got into kindergarten, I found myself with about an hour and a half every day after uh-huh. I worked because the early shift knocks off around one o'clock. And before all my kids came home from school, it was just like this amazing hour and a half, maybe even two-hour segment of the day that I had all to myself. And so I've just kept a daily writing habit of about an hour and a half, two hours a day. And it's amazing what you can accomplish when you're really motivated to uh, to do it every day and get a lot a lot done in that time. And, and the, the question that I'm sure you're getting a lot um, is whether you're Stephen Milburn. I mean, does, does that get tiresome when, when people ask us? I mean, you're writing a book about a morning radio host in Victoria. Um, yeah. <laughs> they must ask no, that a lot. Not, yeah, I am asked that a lot. It's not tiresome at all. And uh, and the only thing that surprises me a little bit is how surprised I was by that question at first, because after all, uh, I, I knew I was writing about somebody who who kind of mirrored me and mirrored my life. Uh, and I just sort of thought, well, people will see the word novel and, and then they'll just accept it as that. But, of course, people have been asking, so how much of this is you and uh, and how much of it is based on your own life or experience in radio? So I am getting the question a lot. And, of course, it's a perfectly natural first question about the book to me, I think. Yeah. Um, Stephen Milburn is new to Victoria when we meet him in the book. And this is, I guess, yeah. in the, the, the mid-2010s. Um, yeah. Where is he from? 
So he's from Edmonton, uh, but he has spent most of his adult life, or indeed all of his adult life, until he moves to Victoria in Ottawa. He, he went there to Carleton, uh, went to journalism school, and ended up becoming a reporter with the Canadian press uh, on their parliamentary, uh, uh, in the parliamentary bureau on Parliament Hill. And he had what he actually thought was a great job. He really loved it. But like a lot of Canadian press reporters on Parliament Hill, they end up doing the radio rounds. And uh, this is part of the backstory that he had done this and and, uh, and taken a liking to radio. So when the opportunity came to move to Victoria, he and his wife, Carol, who is a lawyer in, in Ottawa, and she's originally from Calgary, so they're both Alberta natives. And like a lot of Alberta natives, they pine for the West Coast. And so they, they both jumped at this opportunity to move to Victoria so that he could become the morning uh, uh, morning show host at this fictitious Victoria radio station, CIFU. And so that's how the novel uh, starts with them newly arrived in Victoria in this uh, whole new city and this whole new uh, uh, life situation as new parents. And it's a, a private station, not a public broadcaster, right? That's right, exactly, yeah. Although, uh, and maybe I shouldn't give away too much, but I, I have two sequels and only two sequels planned. And uh, the, the final one will uh, take place if I write it and get it published uh, at the public broadcaster. But yeah, but yeah, to, to CIFU is a fictitious private radio station. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that I, I went back um, the other night uh, in preparing for a chat, um, uh, just to read parts of the book again and remind myself of, of why I enjoyed the book a great deal. Um, the thing I noticed is, is reading the beginning of the book and, and comparing it to, to how I remembered it at the end was the growth that Milburn goes through. Um, as the book progresses, I mean, at, at the beginning of the book, he seems to be just going through the motions. He's, he's a, a, mm-hmm. a, a new dad. He's a husband. He's got this this morning shift at the radio station, um, and even when the, the station is, is is sort of you know trying to get him to to bring up the ratings, if you will, um, yep. he doesn't really do anything conscious about that. I mean, the ratings eventually you know nudge up, but. Um, he just seems pretty listless. Yeah. Um, when you're creating a character like that, um, how do you, uh, uh, keep going? Because, I mean, at one point, looking back at him, he's hard to like, I guess, at the beginning. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because he, he is really struggling at the beginning. Uh, and in fact, he, he struggles all the way through, but at the beginning, he is just, uh, struggling, and he's complaining too. And I, I definitely yeah. take your point, Joe. I mean, he's kind of moaning. His colleagues are his colleagues like him because, he, on the one hand, he's a likable guy, but he's a bit of a mope too. And he's kind of, <laughs> you know, sure, he's got a difficult time. I mean, he's got a colicky infant uh, son at home. He's in a new city, and he has to wake up at three thirty every day for work. But honestly, he, you know, he, he's complaining about it. He's feeling sorry for himself, and he's struggling to get by. So I, I did intentionally want to make him that way a bit at the start i i thought he he you know he, he shouldn't be just the lovable hero of the story i mean you, you should have a bit of uh, your patience tested for somebody who sure he, he's got a difficult lot in life but it's actually you know compared to what so many people struggle with in life it's not that much so yeah he's a bit difficult to love but he finds his way uh, throughout the book in a number of reasons, primarily because uh, as a journalist, he finds a story yeah. that he really wants to report on. And that's the uh, the, the homeless encampment uh, on the lawn of the Victoria Courthouse that really happened in 2015 and 20, or 20, yeah, 2016. Yeah, do you think his, um, he's surprised by his reaction to that story, say? 
Yeah, I think so, because, you know, he had been a parliamentary reporter. Uh, so, And that's not to say that political reporters don't cover real-life issues, because, of course, they do. But, right. but it's more, you know, they're more focused on the procedure, of course, uh, and the politics. And here he found himself uh, on live radio talking to politicians and police and various other social agency providers about homelessness. Uh, that was something I could relate to years ago where, you know, we talked about homelessness on the radio with all sorts of people around the issue, but not the actual people experiencing homelessness themselves. And and almost by accident, he decided one day, you know, in the, in the daily news grind where he had yeah. yet another story, uh, he found himself saying in the news meeting, well, why don't I just go down to this new homeless encampment and interview the homeless people themselves? And that's where it kind of started for him because he met a lot of them in person and started relating to them, and, and that's where the, the story really got hold of him and where I think he becomes a more interesting character. Yeah, and, and, and he, he changes, uh, obviously because of that situation, he changes for a number of reasons throughout the book, but um, I, I noticed when he's, he's talking to the homeless, um, the way he looks at life, or even just the way he talks to them, um, changes, and... Um, he runs into the difficulty of, of um, the, the ownership of the station, who uh, does uh, this. Uh, by the way, when I see George Caulfield's name um, in the book as it comes up, I, the same happens when I look at a map of the North Shore of Vancouver here. Yeah. Um, I, I keep thinking that it's spelled incorrectly. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, you know, it's funny, uh, a little aside, is that the publisher, yeah. uh, Mark Cote in Toronto with Cormorant Books, uh, grew up in West Vancouver. Uh, and he said, you know, I just, he, I mean, it's interesting because, so he's in, he's in Toronto, he's in, been in Toronto for years. Yeah. But he said one of the things that attracted to him and one, one of the reasons he wanted to publish the book is because it's on the West Coast. And he actually, now I'll, uh, I'll give a little, myself a little wiggle room to get this slightly wrong. He either grew up uh, on Caulfield Street or near Caulfield Village in uh, West Van. Uh, but anyway, he said, he said, let's spell it the wrong way. Are you okay with that? And I said, oh, sure. If you want to spell it the wrong <laughs> way, let's spell it the wrong way. But that's the way we both thought of it, too. So, so George Caulfield uh, obviously doesn't want this. He's like a lot of people, I guess, in, in, in a lot of these cities that have to contend with the homelessness problem. He has a point of view uh, about the homeless yeah. and, and what they're doing in uh, the respective cities. Um, what, what's Stephen's relationship at that point with the management? Well, with management, I mean, he, he's, uh, he has a sort of a somewhat tense uh, relationship with management. On the one hand, he was hired by the manager, but like everybody else in the station, everybody else, he finds the owner of the station, uh, who's George, all intimidating, well-groomed man in his 70s, intimidating because well he is intimidating and you know he demands a lot of his employees he has a high standard a very professional standard of what his radio station should be and that kind of intimidates steve but uh, but on the other hand steve uh, in caulfield's eyes is very good on the radio although whenever he sees him and sees his sleep deprived kind of disheveled state he, he kind of second guesses himself uh, this is george caulfield yeah. station owner but by and large uh so they have a, a sort of a uh, a tense piece, as it were. The station owner wanted to hire him and thinks he's good on the radio. And as you said earlier, the ratings start to go up. So professionally, and he says, by and large, Milburn, I'm, I'm, it's been a good decision bringing you here to Victoria. But just knock it off with the 
with the the you know the the sympathy for the homeless and the, and the kind of the more uh, progressive stuff as, as 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 the station owner sees it. Yeah, and we see that in the callers to the station. I mean, I guess that's yeah. the, they're part of the market. I suppose that that this is a point of view that they have. Um, yeah, and, and it's a point of view that, that you know I hear and, uh, from, from so many people, and I, and I uh, and I certainly understand it in a lot of ways. But he comes up against it, uh, this idea of well, let's you know this this homeless camp is causing so many problems in the community. So uh, stop stop reporting with any sympathy on it. Yeah, yeah. You also give um, the reader a good sense of of, of the setting. Not, and I'm not just talking about Victoria and Vancouver Island, but radio itself. It's almost a um, a romantic view that you convey to the reader about radio's relevance. I mean, there Hmm. are still a lot of us that listen. Absolutely, and I mean, this is amazing thing about radio is that uh, you know uh, I don't know how many decades after the first prediction of its demise that it's still going, and no doubt it's still. It's, it's still changing and constantly changing, and, and you know when you talk about overall numbers of radio, uh, you, you, you might be wise to add in audio, podcast listeners, and, and so on, because people are listening in different ways. But it is, it is still going. I mean, you know, you don't have to go very far on the Vancouver radio dial to find live, late-breaking news information from a number of stations. Uh, you know, just to state the obvious and. Uh, I don't know. Somebody who's worked in radio, uh, daily radio, for 25 years, I'm glad it's still here. Um, As to Victoria and and how you depict it, um, it, 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 as somebody who's who's visited the place, I I found that um, uh, you you depict it in such a, uh, like radio, such a loving way. I mean, um, you really like living there, don't you? I do, and I love this city. Uh, and I, I actually I appreciate y- you having that reaction, Joe, if, if you don't mind me saying, because, I mean, on the one hand, I love it, but I also wanted to uh, convey some of the, you know, the less fortunate sides of it, because yeah. the, the character Stephen Milburn moves there, and as he says, I moved here for the daffodils and the double-decker buses, like all the things that, that draw the tourists. But then, of course, he, he, you know, finds this homeless encampment and some of the uh, more, uh, you know, the, the the rougher areas of town, and and he sees sort of the uh, the dark and the light, as it were, or the the struggles as well as the picturesque po- postcard pretty parts of the city. Uh, but I, I I've tried to write, and I think I've written both parts and described both parts of the city with an equal admiration because I do love this city. There's so many great things about it, and not just from the tourist point of view, yeah. although uh, that that is a big part of it too. Yeah, like all of our cities that we find ourselves living in, it's it's an imperfect city, and I think that's the the um, the marvelous thing that you do in your book is is is, is convey that to the reader, um, because uh, when we pack up and 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 move on after a week or a weekend in in, in a particular city, life does go on, yep. and uh, there are people there that are there for the duration, not just people like yourself, but but uh, those that are less fortunate. And uh, we mustn't forget them. Absolutely, and it's uh, it, it's it's one of the things that that I, I struggled with because I wasn't sure uh, to begin with of how much to uh, make this what people outside of Victoria would want it to be, which is sort of you know the Empress Hotel and the mm-hmm. twinkling lights on the legislature and that sort of thing. And at the same point in time, I didn't want to give people the impression that uh, oh, Victoria is this, uh, you know, is this woebegone city of nothing but homelessness and poverty and so right, on, because right. obviously that's not true either. So, yeah, but, but in a way that's what is so 
uh, liberating about writing a novel is you have the opportunity to to kind of fill in a lot of those uh, nuances and shades of gray and different perspectives that well let's say in a, you know if you if you're a radio news reporter for instance in one minute that, that are often hard to convey yeah. this feeling of sleep deprivation is throughout the book because that's obviously yeah. what Stephen has to contend with with his yeah. work um, this feeling this jet lag is as you you convey so well um, there's that fear of missing the alarm or multiple alarms and and yeah. um, these are some things that you have gone through right over the years Oh yeah, de- definitely. And I've been, so I've been hosting now. I mean, I've been working in radio for I guess a little more than 25 years, and I've been working in early morning radio where I have to be at work at 4:30 for I guess seven. I've lost track. Seven, 16 or 17 years, uh, and so I basically wake up at about 3:45 every morning, and it's something that a lot of people struggle with. Now, having said that, some people are just naturals at it, and one of uh, in the book, Stephen Milburn's colleagues, his producer. She just gets up, no problem, every morning. She doesn't drink coffee. She doesn't seem to struggle with it. I have known a handful of people like that yeah. over the years, but way more people who struggle with it. And, and you know what? A couple of uh, like years back, but uh, CBC would occasionally have uh, meetings, kind of uh, forums for hosts from across the country. Yeah. And at one with, with morning show hosts, like that was the number one co- uh, conversation uh, over coffee after the actual, like we, we would be discussing journalism officially, but then as soon as that was done, like the number one conversation period was sleep deprivation. How, how, is, how is it affecting your life? And it's just been such a common uh, struggle for so many people who work the shift over the years that I thought, so this, this, there's something to this. It's not just me in the early days when I was doing this job, when I had young kids. It's, it's a pretty common thing to, to, uh, to have difficulty with. Yeah, the, our, our hero Milburn meets the his competitor, the the public radio broadcaster, yeah. uh, that's opposite him in the morning. And I think one of the first questions he asks him is, is or they ask each other, is what time they get up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and and Milburn has the uh, the um, uh, CBC radio host beat by fifteen minutes because he, <laughs> he wakes up at three thirty rather than three forty five. But they find this kind of thing, this kind of minutia. Uh, worthy of, of asking each other about, and, and I can I can I can assure you that is the kind of question that I've heard asked and, and asked of others, even even without my prompting. Uh, your colleague here in Vancouver, um, Stephen Quinn, he was on on, yeah. on the show once, and 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 yeah. um, he he told me about. Um, well, I did, that was one of the first questions I asked him too: is what time he woke up in the morning. Um, yeah. But he he told me about. Um, how rough it is after the show and 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 yeah. because you're still working and you said a moment ago that you're you're probably still at work till after 12 right one o'clock yeah. i think you said yeah yeah um, that's right. and and falling asleep during meetings is something that stephen milburn uh, yeah. uh has to deal with and and stephen quinn also said that um have you fallen asleep no no i was going to ask you on oh, the yeah. air but but in meetings after after work i mean does that oh happen? yeah well, I, I well to, just as a quick aside, I have almost fallen asleep on the air, like especially in the first uh, few years uh-huh. when we had a, a newborn infant at home. There were a couple of telephone interviews where I came this close, you know, to, to where I was sort of nodding off, nodding off, and just just caught myself at the last minute. But I have full on absolutely unequivocally fallen asleep in meetings uh, to the extent that and i don't know why joe it took me so long but it probably i'm guessing it would took me about eight or nine years after i 
that I finally wised up and I brought in this beautiful lazy boy that we had inherited from family friends and I stuck it in the storeroom at CBC Victoria with management's blessing. They were uh-huh. great. I mean, my, my station manager at the time said, oh, sure, if you want to, if you want to. And I, I started having a daily nap after our story meeting every day in this lazy boy for half an hour, which helped a, a huge amount. But yeah, I, I struggled with it, you know, and I, I can remember that feeling vividly where, you know, somebody would be saying, Gregor, Gregor, <laughs> Gregor, and all of a sudden you, you, you kind of you come to and you think, what, what, what? I'm in the middle of a story meeting. Oh boy, did I was I just asleep? And you look at the look on everybody's face, and yes, I was just asleep. Yeah. See, I always wondered that as a listener, is is the the, the the morning hosts do their preparatory work uh, before yeah. or after the show? I guess it'd be impossible to to to, to uh, say plan a morning show at, at say midnight or one a.m. There are people who do that though, don't aren't there? Yeah, I've known people who, and in fact, the predecessor uh, who who hosted on the island in Victoria for CBC just for a couple of years, Paul uh-huh. Vasey, who was a writer as well, uh, interestingly, and, and, and wrote a few novels, he would often show up, I'm told, well, he mentioned this to me, uh, he would often show up at like 2 o'clock in the morning just to get ahead on things, and, you know, and, and do all that sort of thing. So uh, good on him, but I... I I have not been able to accomplish that task. I, I mean, I, I get there at 4.30, and it gives me uh, – I'm not on the air until 5.30, so it gives me time to do a couple of pre-tapes, uh-huh. because if we're talking to, let's say, a professor uh, at Queen's University talking to us about the, the NATO summit or what have you, you know, it'll be, it'll be what have you, 7.45 for him and, uh, and 4.45 for me. So knock off a pre-tape like that on the phone for 10 minutes. But then I'll, I'll have another half hour or 45 minutes to go over the notes for the show coming up. So that usually leaves enough time. Well, especially the longer you've been doing it, too. And I don't know if, if you can relate to this, Joe, but, you know, a lot of things, uh, there's a certain efficiency gathered just by the sheer years behind you. And, you know, uh, like I don't, I don't need as much back information on a lot of issues as I did when I first started. Yeah, I, do. I find though that that as I prepare for interviews, I, I spend probably a lot more time now than I did at the beginning. Interesting. I don't, I don't know yeah. why that is. I mean, maybe I've, 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 um, <laughs> I'm not as efficient with my timer, or maybe I'm, I'm I'm trying to read as much as I can about the person or the book or, or oh. things like that. I think that's a, a testament to your professionalism that you're. You, I mean, I, that's probably the right direction you're going in uh, to to know. Uh, that even when you think you, you you you've got something that you still need to prepare and go over things. So, uh, yeah, I I mean maybe at some point I'll get to the stage where I could go in before four thirty. But frankly, I doubt I doubt it. I think four thirty is enough for me every mm-hmm. morning. Uh, but having said that, you know that's one of the reasons we're there until twelve or, or mm-hmm. I, I, I usually right. get out of there by one o'clock. So I'll, I'll I will set up one of these for the next day myself because yeah. we're a small team in Victoria. But then I'm also just going over notes and reading articles and backgrounds and, you know, even occasionally doing things like filling a freedom of information request, you know, just like basic journalism. So part of my prep uh, will come the day before. So, for instance, if I'm interviewing an author, uh, uh, for instance, I would, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be reading the book in the days ahead of time and coming up with some questions or, or reading reviews, let's say, the day before or a few days before at like 10 or 11 a.m. So, yeah, it. It comes at all times, and you try to figure out when what fits when best in, in any given day. So, so the, the uh, our central character in the book, Stephen Wilburn, he drinks a lot of coffee, oh, and yeah. I'm sure you're asked that. I asked uh, Quinn that when when I talked to him, um, <laughs> how much coffee he drinks during the day. Um, yeah, what did what did he say? Do you remember? Um, 
With a lot, it's I a guess. it's a lot, yeah. It, yeah. And and yeah. Um, his uh, uh, Jay Costello, a, a former colleague yeah. of yours as well, uh, yeah. when he was working the morning shift, he told me that um, he was surprised that um, he didn't drink as much. I guess. Um, because, oh, you mean alcohol as much? No, drink coffee as much as he thought. Oh, he sorry. Yeah. Going to say, well, one one thing that definitely helps is not drinking uh, too much alcohol at night, uh, which our character finds out to his dismay the hard way. Near the end of the <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. When, when he returns once and once only to that habit. But uh, yeah, well, Jake, Jake. I mean, I shouldn't speak for Jake, who produced the early edition and who I worked with in Vancouver, Victoria. But he he struck me as one of those guys who didn't need as much coffee as I always feel I I do. I I, I drink a lot of it in the morning when I first get to work. And that that usually lasts me through the show. And then, as as uh, Stephen Quinn was mentioning, you know, the afternoon and the rest of the day can be hard. So I'll usually have another few uh, cups of coffee around noon. And that that uh, that usually does it. But but it was no accident that a, a steaming cup of hot coffee ended up on the on the cover page of Radio Jet Life. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and how do you find it now that you're on vacation, as you are here, as we talk here in in, in August? And when you're not on the air, say on the weekend, uh, is coffee something that, that you still uh, find yourself needing? Well, I think I just find myself enjoying it. I'll have a small cup at about seven thirty or eight, which is you know sleeping in three or four hours. Yeah, uh, but I'm used to, and I just enjoy it. But that's it. No, and it is. I definitely notice the difference. The other thing I notice the difference, uh, Joe, apart from not needing as much coffee, uh, is I actually lose weight every summer. I take a week, uh, sorry, a month off or uh-huh. so. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't try. I don't even really pay attention. But inevitably, I'll lose like ten or sometimes. And I'm a big guy, so I, I mean, I'm six five, and I guess I'm a, I'm about two twenty. But often I'll lose ten or fifteen pounds in a month, and I, I suspect uh, that it's because I'm just not quite as tired and uh, maybe not mm. stuffing things in my mouth uh, distractedly to to take away from the fatigue. It's a, it's a bit of a theory I'm working on. It's a, it hasn't really been proven, but I always lose weight in the summer yeah, for whatever reason. And, and the same thing happened, because Milburn's, uh, as we see in his day, always begins at the, the uh, coffee chain, getting yeah. getting the coffee and then the donut, right? Or, or, yeah. And then when he goes yeah. out for coffee in in the middle of the day, there's always a scone yeah. or something that he picks up, right? Yeah, exactly. Not Not healthy, and he gains... A fair bit of weight. He's not. He's not looking. One of the many. And one of the many kind of kind of sad ways he's feeling sorry for himself, especially in the first half or so of the book, is that he's putting on weight and isn't too impressed with the way he's looking these days. But yeah, it's uh, you know what what is the thing they used to say about first year university students who go off to residence and you know they get the freshman I don't know forty or something they pack on weight. Yeah, I yeah. have heard this complaint. Uh, again, over the years, from a lot of other people who've worked the early morning shift in radio or TV or what have you, that they they find it hard not to put on weight harder than they used to find. Yeah. Well, what have your peers in radio? What have they thought of the book? Oh, it's interesting. I haven't uh, I haven't talked to too many of them yet because uh, I released we released the book just before uh, summer, and uh, I haven't talked to too many. I, I, officially, I've, I've talked to one who uh, I won't name only because I'm not sure if she. Uh, if it's okay with her. She's in another part of the country. And she said she loved it. She said, actually, it was like therapy reading it because uh, she had young kids at the time. And, and the, my first response was, oh, I'm thrilled at this because really, I'll, this I wrote the book for a bit of therapy, you yeah. know, to, just to sort of 
reflect some of the funnier things I've been through. And, and other than that, I, I just thought I'd like people to laugh. But hearing that somebody who'd done a similar job and in a, in a similar circumstance uh, really found it kind of comforting was, was, uh, was, was very satisfying. But then I thought, hang on a minute, I'm a dad and she's a mother, and how much more difficult was it for her? Right. Notwithstanding that, you know, a lot of fathers these days, like myself, do a lot more than traditionally would have been the case. Like, I was always up every night doing some diapers and stuff. But there's no doubt, obviously, that it was that much harder on my wife. Uh, you know, all of the, the, the new struggles of, of being a mother. And I just thought, and I said this to, to the fellow host, uh, mm -hmm. how much more difficult would it have been for you, but anyway, she she didn't dwell on that. She said it was just nice to read kind of a similar experience, but also to see the humor in it because I think something about radio is inherently humorous, probably for all the same reasons that you know made WKRP in Cincinnati or news or talk radio or what have yeah, you uh, yeah. funny shows to watch for for a lot of us. Sheila Rogers, I, I heard her on your show uh, say how much she enjoyed the book. Yeah, that's nice of Sheila. I, I it, it's great. Well, she and she knows uh, firsthand. Uh, what it's like because when she hosted yeah. Sounds Like Canada for years in Vancouver, uh, and actually I was briefly a producer on it. Oh, now I forget. She had to wake up earlier than I did. I think she had to wake up at something like 2.45 or 3 yeah. uh, because it went to uh, air so early for Eastern Canada for the Maritime. So Sheila knows all about that sleep deprivation struggle and she's got such a great uh, sense of humor and a great laugh. So, uh, you know, whether it's a book or any anything else that brings out Sheila's laugh is, is pretty satisfying. Yeah. So, so you, you you alluded to a moment ago that you're working at least two more books on on Stephen Milburn. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, at the end of the book, I really liked him. So, so um, yeah. he's obviously somebody that you like. Otherwise, you wouldn't write about him, right? Yeah, it's true. Although it's interesting, uh, the, the, so I, I, uh, I, I've got three books planned, and I've always had three uh -huh. uh, books planned for this, and no more. And we'll see whether they get there. But it looks like uh, they will. The, the third book returns to Stephen as the focus, and the, the second one stays at this fictitious radio station, CIFU, and uh, tries to answer the big unanswered question at the end of the first one. So. Uh, it, it actually focuses more on the news director, uh, Malcolm McDonald, who's a Scot, who's kind of found himself caught in all the middle of this. And and uh, Stephen Milburn, our, our main character, uh, becomes less of a focus, which will be interesting. I don't know if it's a, you know, for access when it comes to readers or not. We'll have to see. But uh, then the and uh, on returns. Uh, to Milburn when he returns to early morning radio mm. and uh, uh, after a few years away, and he returns along with a lot of other people to the public broadcaster uh, after some very big changes there. So, well, we'll yeah, I, I haven't. I am currently uh, working on the number two novel in this series of three. Yeah, there are a lot of other characters other than, than, than Stephen that I found fascinating. Susan, the producer. Um, yeah. uh, the, uh, the, the morning news reader, I found her fun. Um, yeah. and, uh, Caulfield, obviously, I, um, uh, just a, a, great dialogue that you got to write for him. Um, there's a lot of people in this book that are, that are just, uh, she, Sheila Campbell, I guess is the name of the, um, yeah, the, the morning news reader yeah. who's, you know, very put together. And it's so funny she, she actually was, she was inspired by a few people I've known in real life who are just so they seem unflappable, 
And yet, the more you get to know them, the more you realize they have some deep-seated uh, anxieties about speaking on live radio. And it turns <laughs> out that Sheila, despite being just this real anchor in the truest sense of the word of a newsreader, and she's this stable, professional, uh, reliable personality in the station and the morning newsreader for years, she is absolutely terrified, it slowly comes out, uh, of, of being thrust into the host's chair, and, and Steve sleeps in a few days and, and almost makes that a necessity, which really irritates her, but it, it, it finally comes out that she's not mad at him so much as absolutely petrified of uh, becoming a host uh, rather than a newsreader because of the difference that, well, a host kind of has to wing it, you, you yeah. know, as opposed to just sticking to the script, and that doesn't really suit her personality. So she was a character I had a lot of fun writing, also because... She can be quite acerbic, and she doesn't suffer fools gladly. And yeah, I, I really like her. She, she will definitely feature uh, 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 fairly prominent, well, prominently in the next book too. Oh, that's great! Yeah, because yeah, the, uh, um, because of what happens at the end of the book, one wonders um, whether we'll see some of these other people again. But it, it's great that we will. Um, I, the, the last time I, I had you on here on the podcast, um, your first book on borrowed time it was just before its publication um mm-hmm. d- did its success did that surprise you uh that's a good question uh yeah it did in a way i mean the biggest surprise uh, in terms of the success of that book was waking up on i think it was the day it was actually published and and reading on my phone which i probably shouldn't do at three thirty in the morning <laughs> but I, I i stood in my kitchen in the dark uh, after having pushed uh, the the coffee button and I was looking at my Twitter feed, and I was trying to figure out why I was talking to the Writers Trust of Canada about some new prize called the Balsilli Prize for Public Policy on the radio airwaves this morning. And, and what I couldn't figure out through my sleep-deprived brain is that I was a finalist for this prestigious prize, uh, you know, paid for by Jim Balsilli and, uh, and put on by the Writers Trust about a book for public policy. So, I mean, I had no idea, to be honest, A, that that prize existed because it was a new prize, uh, B, that I had been nominated by the publisher, and then, of course, that I would be a finalist. But uh, So I just presumed that the writer's trust was going to be talking on the radio the next uh, the next morning uh-huh. uh, because often agencies like that will tweet out these uh, things ahead of the interviews. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I forgot that I'm interviewing somebody about this public policy program. It took me about 10 minutes of befuddlement to figure out, oh, wait a minute, I've just been nom- I've just been a fu- become a finalist for a major award on the day my book has come out. So that, that was a thrill, uh, mostly because that prize recognizes that good nonfiction books uh, can be, uh, you know, can be uh, influential and, and can perhaps uh, affect policy and, and maybe make some good changes out of it. So in that sense, I, I was definitely surprised. And then the, the response from readers, because it sold well, was it was just really gratifying. Because I couldn't tell that I was published by Goose Lane, which is a mid-sized independent Canadian publisher and just an excellent publisher. And they were enthusiastic about the book. But uh, I had had a no from one of the big publishers in the United States mm. who said, and I'll just paraphrase here, but they just said, no, earthquakes are too depressing. No one's going to want to read that book, so we're not going to publish it. So, uh, yeah, so it was a pleasant surprise to, to see that people actually did seem to want to read or at least, at least buy the book. Yeah, I still think about things that, that, in that book. Like I, I look around my house and I wonder, walk around the house and, and think about what needs to be fixed and, and the sort yeah. and, and uh, that that feeling that you you convey in that book about how things can change in an instant. Yeah. Um, 
that's something that that I've I've been thinking about ever since I read the book because um, well we're seeing things you know in real life around us or or, mm-hmm. or um, you know whatever we see in the news where, where these things do happen and change people's lives in an instant and and um, I guess there is there's an inherent fear that that one feels as as, as one thinks of, of these things. Yeah, absolutely, and that that I, you phrased that really well. That that kind of uh, fear that things can change in an instant. But that, I mean, that was the absolute like the, that was the 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 essence of what prompted me to write that book about earthquakes in the first place. The thing that made me feel better about it as I researched it and interviewed people and finally. Uh, uh, came to terms with and, and, and finished the book was that, uh, well, doing things about it, preparing, uh, it helps. I mean, not only will it help in the eventuality if, if that uh, disaster happens, yeah. but it really helps you with your life in the meantime because, of course, maybe you and I will both be caught up in, you know, Canada's worst natural disaster, the Cascadia Megathrust earthquake, and both Vancouver and Victoria will be absolutely devastated. Or maybe we won't. I mean, maybe it won't happen for 200 years. And, and that, of course, is the dilemma that so many of us face. And in a way, I mean, I, I think maybe that's what climate change and, and the, the effects uh, and, the, and the extreme events that are more likely due to climate change uh, might be uh, impressing upon us a lot more as, as they become more and more common. I mean, if you look at wildfires... And I know that you know uh, that there are various causes of wildfires yeah. and, and so on. But but I mean they are becoming more and more common. Like I just got back from the Kootenays, where I've been going every summer, almost every summer for more than forty years. And so I clearly remember as a kid in the in the early nineteen eighties and late nineteen seventies. I remember forest fires. Yeah. I know forest fires are not new. I don't remember like absolutely invisible mountains because of wildfire smoke. And it's now it's just become common in the last five or six years, or nearly common. And I've got my kids asking me if this is the new normal. And so, yeah, we are all, or well, many of us anyway, are are are, reckon, are, are trying to to sort through this and, and reckoning with. I mean, could we be next if it's not a, a fire? Maybe it's another flood, like hit the Fraser Valley, or or landslides, or, or God knows what. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it's more and more natural to think about these things, but you also have to find a way of being at peace with it and not, and not just being consumed with yeah. the fear of it. I had a chuckle, though, as I was reading uh, Radio Jet Lag, that uh, uh, S- Susan's boyfriend, Jean is a seismologist, and I thought that that was funny that you you, you made him that. <laughs> yeah, he works with the with the uh, with Natural Resources Canada or the Geological Survey, and, and yeah, there's this this one brief moment where they say, "Oh yeah, Victoria is going to get hammered by an awful earthquake one day," and then they both kind of shiver or shudder and just switch and change subjects, which which is often a common response to that one. Gregor, it's been such a pleasure to read this book and to talk to you again. Congratulations on everything and, and continued good luck. I so appreciate your time today. Well, Joe, I appreciate you t- uh, reading it and, and uh, taking the time. Thanks for calling me again. Nice to talk to you, as always. The book is called Radio Jetlag. It's published by Cormorant Books. It's uh, author Gregor Craigie. Join me on the line from Victoria in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunto.